Today's episode of The Greatest Stories Never Told is brought to you by Smart Leash Co. Supplying the highest quality surf leashes and their parts so you only pay for the necessary. Once is not enough. Follow Smart Leash Co. at www.smartleashco.com on Instagram at, at smartleashco. I use them. They're fucking genius. When you snap your leggy, you have the parts to replace and uh, keep your leggy going. And yeah, just a, a world-class leash with the added bonus that it is able to be repaired and get you back on your craft and in the cone zone. Made by a proper core lord cone fiend himself in Dan down here, our native Balna. Well played. Ain't That Swell is also brought to you by Swell CBD Oil. I use it every day to repair my flogged noggin, help me deal with anxiety, uh, reduce inflammation, helps with sleep, and it's just another great tool to have in the tool belt. Uh, Send them a DM on Instagram at swell underscore AUS. That's swell underscore AUS. AUS, use the code word HUMAD for 10% off. HUMAD. Fantasies, pulsing swells, them who knows them, seven tales. On distant reefs, on fatal shores, heroes and heroines from days of yore. They live on the fringes, pack mondo cones, orbs of mortal conequence, pulverizing bones, adventures and nightmares for young and old. These are the greatest stories never Oscar Wright and the Fear of Falling, Free Surfing's Resident Artist Comes of Age, by Matt George. Wood Headland, Sydney Northern Beaches, Australia, August 18th, 2002, 6.02 p.m. What is it about the edge of a cliff that makes you want to stand so close to it? He looks down into the cold sea, wondering. He stands there, surfboard in hand, wondering what it would be like to jump and just keep falling forever. Below him, powerful waves slam into the cliff, sending rainbows 40 feet up into the evening sun. He can taste them on his tongue. They are living things to him. He stares into the ocean. It isn't the surf that scares him. It's the falling. There's only one blue hole, 8 feet square, 25 feet below his toes, swept by the impact of the surf. He must hit that spot perfectly. He wonders what it would be like to not make it, to just jump and find the other side, to fall forever. His childhood friend Adam, all grown up now, stands next to him on the cliff, all nerves and laughter, waiting for his signal. But Oscar, Billy, Pippin, Wright cannot hear him. Oscar is waiting, not out of fear, out of curiosity. He is waiting for the wonder, 
waiting not for the moment when he has to jump, but for the moment when he wants to jump. And it is this, this moment, that eve of falling, that frightens him more than anything on the face of the earth. Excerpt number two, The Crash House. The first thing you feel when you pull up to Oscar Wright's house is that you've been here before. Or at least you've heard about a place like this so often that it's vivid. A place that scares a quiet neighborhood. Unlike any other house in Beachside Narrabeen, Oscar's house rises like a Chinese lantern. Even in the middle of the day, it glows. Built by an eccentric some time ago who had since bailed for the warmer climes to the north. As you park out front, you feel as if the neighbors are crossing their fingers, hoping the arrival of a stranger does not mean another ear-shattering party, or worse, another ceremonial drum circle. Before you walk around to the gate, it comes to you. This is an urban commune, and you immediately sense that this house is very important to the scheme of things in Oscar Wright's life. You will listen to him call it his first spaceship, and as he explains this to you, he will tell you the story of how he got it. He had signed the Holy Grail, his American deal with the Vulcan brand, and that very day he pulled up, looked at the house from the street, saw the for sale sign, and bought it the next day without ever having opened the door. He could just feel it. This was home. Oscar Wright could make a stand here. Excerpt number three. You pick your way over the sleeping family and down the staircase through the kitchen for a drink of water and head out into the back deck. You close the French doors behind you and you sit at the pink painted splash picnic bench and you stare up into the heavens of Narrabeen. Down at the end of the street, the ocean crashes and sifts the sands of Narrabeen and it hisses on the easterly breeze. The swell is building. The sound competes with the last of the surf movie that is blaring out of an open upstairs window. You look over the fence and directly into the neighbor's picture window. It's 11 p.m. An older couple, kids long gone, looks back at you and then pulls their curtains taut. They must pray tonight will be mercifully short. Four days now and they've already called the cops twice on this house. Twenty-something shiftless surfers are not supposed to be able to establish million-dollar communes next door, not within Sydney's beachside mini-mansion compounds. Shiftless surfers are supposed to rent shabby apartments back behind the mall. Shiftless surfers are not supposed to make homes for themselves. Shiftless surfers are supposed to be lazy and ride broken bicycles with surfboards under their arms and live on dole checks. The neighbor's drapes draw tighter once twice. The surf movie upstairs reloops and starts over, and it will play all night. There goes the neighborhood, again. Excerpt number three, Rick and Kathy. You stand in the work shed in the back of Oscar's childhood house up on the hill behind Narrabeen. The house where Oscar's mother, Kathy, and little sister, Annie, still live. Oscar has bought that one, too. You stand with Oscar in the uneasy silence of the shed out back and feel what Oscar calls the unliving room. 
His father's spirit is close here, among the debris of paint and poems and smashed furniture and broken black-bottomed kneeboards and unobtained dreams. This was his father's studio. Oscar's father is still here in this house that was once home to the coolest parents in the neighborhood. The kind of parents that would let your friends crash for weeks. The house with no schedules and no rules and late teen nights and midnight stories and scribbles on the walls and Tintin comics and imagination and hellfire music. The house with the funky colored doors and the Buddha shrines and the Hindu shrines and the Jesus shrines and the kids' artwork all over hell and the big, simple meals that you didn't have to wash your hands for with plenty for everybody, anybody. And the front porch blocked with boxes and boxes of books that had all been read but not forgotten, standing swollen and growing with some tired promise to drop them off at the Goodwill store so other kids could love them. This house is where there was so much love and the father's spirit is still here. The late Rick Wright, Oscar's father. A mad genius with a private, acute perception of a world that had disappointed him. Living with a self-inflected gunshot wound of the world on his mind and a rage inside him that would explode one Christmas morning and shatter not only a family, but a community. Probably manic-depressive, certainly bipolar, Rick was a friend to all, yet an enemy to himself. A gifted kneeboarder when such things were cool, and a frustrated writer when such things weren't. A horticulturist who wanted more out of this world than the workaday life of a hippie dad who found out very quickly that he had mouths to feed who spiraled into a perception that he would never have the time or the intellectual keys that it took to be a published writer. Conradian in his pain, Rick Wright, like Kurtz, his mind was sane, but his soul was mad. And one early Christmas morning, Rick Wright found his exit. Excusing himself from the traditional family pancake breakfast, he quietly walked into his bedroom, shut the door, and hung himself on the doorknob by strapping his leather belt around his neck and sitting down to die. The police would later comment on the incredible willpower that this technique of suicide would demand. The lead cop who wrote up the report was a friend of Rick's. He would report that Rick Wright had not lost his life, he'd left it behind. And it was Oscar Billy Pippin Wright sensing something was wrong, who went looking for his father that Christmas morning, and he found him. Oscar had just turned 18. Excerpt number four. So you stand in the shed in the backyard today with Oscar Wright, in the shed that Oscar describes as his father's important space, and you listen closely to a 26-year-old Oscar Talk quietly of what it all means. You know, mate, my dad, he was just a crazy man. Real bad temper toward himself. Smoked a lot of weed. That seemed to help. He hung on for a while, on the edge. As long as I can remember, I, I never depended on him to lead a long life. I guess he just couldn't break through to that other side. Strange how I felt. As soon as I found him, I knew he was dead. 
And I wondered what it would be like, you know, death. And then I ran screaming to my mother. I never, I never really got any counseling, just heaps of good mates. That counseling, maybe I need some, but it's that whole talking to a stranger thing. My dad was full of encouragement for me and my art, always told me to go for it, always told everyone to follow their dreams. My friends really dug him. The most valuable thing he ever taught me was to never conspire against your own heart, to never spend your days doing something you weren't born to do. I'd love to be my father at 15, see if I could make it work. 20 days after my father died, I signed with Volcom for the first time. He would have cheered. Now my new house, it's like a dream. I want to grow it like a plant, plenty of sunshine. It's all I ever wanted, to get a house that I could have people come together and share, have parties, play music, make movies, whatever. I'm never alone now. I hate being alone. I love being around people. And that is when Oscar stops and a silence falls in the shed. And in this space, you were with them both. His father's space that Oscar was using as his own art studio until yesterday. And you realize that right here, right now, Oscar is leaving this space behind for the first and last time in his life. Oscar's new studio is down the hill in the new house, his house. And Oscar Wright ages right in front of you. He becomes a man. And so you listen to the silence. And you think of the long hours Oscar has spent in this space, making his art, listening to his dad's spirit advice, never conforming, being what he was born to do, and being with him. And it is then that you realize that you, too, love being around people, and that you, too, hate being alone. And so you say it out loud, and Oscar nods, and then he nods again. And he says, let's go back to my house, mate. And you and Oscar leave together, arms around each other's shoulder, all the way down the hill. Warrywood Headland, Sydney Northern Beaches, Australia, August 18th, 2002, 6.03 p.m. The time is now. Oscar Billy Pippin Wright is overwhelmed by it. He wants to jump. A giant set of waves washes over the rocks below, and it is not well-timed, but his legs push off into the abyss, and he is falling, and the wonder is over. The wonder is here, and it is here, falling through space, that Oscar feels as close to his father as he can get. He is filled with the fear of falling, no way back, falling toward the other side, falling toward the eternal question, falling forever towards a cold, unknown, enveloping blackness. And then it, too, arrives, and Oscar, Billy, Pippin Wright plunges into the sea and is swallowed into an airless place, a dizzying place, a dark and lonely place. And for a moment, as his momentum downward stills in a swirl of hissing bubbles, he opens his eyes and looks into his fear, and it is there, stretching off as endlessly as the cosmos towards the four corners of the globe. And he is not afraid of falling anymore. He knows he will never be afraid again. Oscar hesitates, 
cheeks bulging with air, with his father's final solution washing across his mind. And then, exhaling, with a great sweep of his arms, Oscar, Billy, Pippin Wright, chooses to swim up to the surface again. He swims up, up towards life, toward love, toward forgiveness.